0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.
0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: So people used to ask me all the time, is this real? Is climate change real? Is it serious? Is it something that we should prioritize? And I don't get asked that anymore. You know, I feel like the large scale debate has finally moved on from is this real and is it bad to what do we do? And as somebody who is not a policy expert, um, somebody who does not study how government works, how people can affect change, I am largely irrelevant to that conversation, and that makes me
0: so happy. That's climate scientist Kate Marvel. We recorded our conversation just as Hurricane Ian was making landfall in Florida. And her explanation of how climate change is fueling hurricanes turned out to be a remarkable predictor of why Ian would become so devastating in the following days. This is really great that you can be with us today because you can set me straight on a couple of things that really concern me about climate change. And one is that 15 or 20 years ago, I was following, I felt I was following the example of scientists who were saying that weather, the weather we experienced didn't necessarily indicate climate change. So you couldn't point to the severity of a particular storm and say, look at that. But that seems to be changed now. It seems that we're able to say this is an example of climate change. Am I right about that?
2: You are right. And the reason is two things have changed. Um, One is the science has advanced. We know a lot about the physics of climate change. We know a lot about the underlying factors that are changing the climate, not just the temperature, but the rainfall, the drought risk, the storm risk. Um, So we understand a lot of that stuff better than we did several years ago. But the other reason it's getting easier to attribute extreme events to climate change is that the events are becoming more extreme. Um, It is easier to see an outlier when it is a very strong outlier. Um, So we are experiencing events that we think would not have happened without climate change. Um, And in that case, the attribution becomes extremely clear. You don't have to disentangle the role of natural internal climate variability if there's no way that natural variability could have produced that record-shattering event.
0: So as we're speaking right now, the the storm Ian is beginning to batter the coast of Florida. It's predicted to cause tens of millions of dollars of damage. Is that an example of, that we could point to and say the ocean got warmer and caused the acceleration of this storm and it was clearly the result of us
2: So something like a hurricane is much more complex than something like a heat wave. Um, The attribution is very solid for things like heat waves because when it gets warmer, you get more of them. Um, That's something that we understand really well. There are certain aspects of hurricanes that we understand. So we know that warm water is hurricane food. um, And we know that as the waters get warmer, that is leading to stronger storms, not necessarily more storms, but stronger storms. Mm. Um We also know very, very, we're very, very, very sure that warm air holds more water vapor. Um, And that means that when we get these big storms, they can dump a lot more rainfall on us than they would have before. So there's a very clear human fingerprint in the rainfall. There's also a pretty clear fingerprint of climate change in the storm surges um, simply because the sea levels are higher than they were before. Um, So those are those are things that are very very clear that the attribution to climate change caused by humans is is really solid um there are some other aspects that are there's emerging evidence but i i wouldn't say we are as ironclad confident um so those include things like hurricane decay
0: hurricane decay what is hurricane decay
2: so um, hurricanes tend to, I'm oversimplifying the picture here, but hurricanes tend to intensify over warm ocean waters um, and then sort of fizzle out once they hit land. Mm. Um, they're not getting very far inland. And we think that warmer air, which you know holds more water vapor, that carries with it its own source of moisture, its own source of water vapor. And that makes the storm stay stronger for longer over land. So we think hurricanes are lasting for a longer time before they decay, which means they're getting farther inland. Um, So there's evidence for that. There's evidence for increased wind speeds, um, but again, that's not as robust as the link to um, storm surge and rainfall. So there are many different ways a hurricane can be dangerous, is what I'm saying, and some of those ways are very, very clearly linked to climate
0: change. So there might be, because it doesn't decay over land, does does that mean that the chance of damage by flooding may be worse than the wind damage.
2: Exactly. And it also means that areas which are farther from the coast might be experiencing flooding.
0: In the days following my conversation with Kate Marvel, her explanation of how climate change is making hurricanes more dangerous turned out to be tragically accurate. Storm surges almost wiped out Fort Myers Beach, and the failure of Ian to decay over dry land led to torrential rains flooding central Florida. What's more, Ian strengthened again once it reached the Atlantic before turning and devastating the coast of South Carolina. You know, something that I heard from a climate scientist, I guess guess a couple of decades ago, was that if the Gulf Stream were to get a jolt of cold water from the Greenland ice cap, melting. It could stop the Gulf Stream's warm water reaching Europe and and trigger an ice age there. So the idea of global warming leading to an ice age sounded weird but possible. Do we see the danger of that happening now when they talk about the ice sheets melting faster than we thought they were?
2: So we have a past analog for something similar to that happening. Um, so 21,000 years ago was the height of the last ice age. Um, and as that ended, as the world started to come out of the ice age, you see this gradual increase in global average temperatures until all of a sudden you see a fairly rapid in geological terms decrease. the global temperature. And we think that is because um, essentially a a dam made of ice broke and dumped a lot of cold, fresh water into the North Atlantic um, and affected the, um, the overturning circulation of the oceans. So that is an example of something like that happening. And there is evidence of A climate change impact to the circulation in the Atlantic. I think we are not necessarily worried about an abrupt Shut down. We are not necessarily worried about an immediate onset ice age, like in that movie, The Day After Tomorrow.
0: Um, where where it actually happened the day after tomorrow. Where it actually
2: happens. <laughs> so <laughs> we we don't think that it will happen the day after tomorrow. But certainly disruptions to the ocean circulation, um, disruptions to that nice current that delivers warm water and keeps, for example, Britain, which is at the same latitude as Siberia and mm um you know northern or you know hudson bay it keeps britain nice and toasty warm comparatively we are worried about the implications of disruptions to that large scale ocean current they probably won't be as dramatic
0: as in the movies though but it sounds like you're not discounting the possibility that if it really were disrupted that the temperatures could really plummet in europe
2: Yeah. And that's an example of, you know, a tipping element in the climate system, something that once we cross a particular threshold, it's hard to get back. Um, It's almost impossible to get back. Tell
0: me about that. Tell me about tipping points. What would be examples other than the one we're just talking about?
2: So an example might be something like um, the Amazon rainforest um, turning from a carbon sink, which is a you know, a, a place where carbon is taken up by trees and removed from the atmosphere to a net source of carbon dioxide. Um, in that case, we would have more carbon dioxide accumulating in the atmosphere, leading to warmer temperatures. And once the Amazon is gone, it would be really difficult to get it back. Um, so that is an example of a tipping element. Uh Aspect of the climate system that once it's gone, it is not coming back in a human lifetime. Um, you know, other examples include the ice sheet disintegration. It takes a really long time to build up ice sheets over land in Greenland and in Antarctica. And... Once those disintegrate, once those disappear, you can't refreeze an ice sheet in a year. You can't refreeze an ice sheet in a couple of decades. So that's an example of something that we are worried about. And the thing for me that's the, the scariest aspect of, of these tipping points is we don't know when they would happen. We can't tell you limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees C will guarantee that we will not approach these tipping points, we will not approach these irreversible aspects of change in the climate system. We don't have that certainty. Um, Conversely, we can't tell you that if we cross a particular threshold, if we warm more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius, we will definitely trigger these tipping points. We don't have that certainty. And that for me, that uncertainty is, is one of the scariest aspects.
0: There's no point of no return that we've identified, apparently.
2: There's no point of no return for the entire Earth. We do not think that we are going to um, trigger some catastrophic runaway greenhouse effect wherein the Earth turns into Venus. Um, so that's that. That's a source of optimism for me, um, <laughs> that the Earth is not going to turn into <laughs> Venus, we're not going to boil away the oceans. Um, that said... I don't want to live in a world with no Amazon. I don't want to live in a rapidly warming world where the biosphere takes up much less carbon because it's been irrevocably damaged. I don't want to live in that world. I think humans probably will not go extinct, but I always say I've got higher standards than just not being extinct. <laughs> yeah, right. I, want, I want better than that.
0: You remind me of the notion of feedback are we aware of all—well, first of all, tell us what feedback is, in your words, not mine. And are we aware of all of the, the possible feedback instances that are, li- are lying in wait for us?
2: So this is my day job, is studying climate feedback. So I think a lot about them. And the way that I think about feedbacks is global warming— leads to climate change. And those changes in the climate changes to things like the water vapor content in the atmosphere or where the clouds are, or how many there are those changes can themselves affect how the Earth warms up or cools down. So an example of feedback is ice melt. Ice is really shiny. It reflects a lot of light that would otherwise reach the surface of the Earth and warm us up. Um, Kind of like those uh, windscreen protectors you put on your car's windshield on a hot day. Um, Ice is doing that for our planet. Now, as it gets hotter, you're melting the ice. And what used to be a nice shiny white surface is now melted, revealing darker ocean or land underneath. And that absorbs the sun's light, and that in turn warms up the planet. So ice sheet loss, ice loss, is an example of a destabilizing feedback in the climate system.
0: So we start out with a warmed planet, which changes things, which in turn... Can make the planet even warmer, which changes things more, and we're on a downward spiral.
2: Exactly. So we are we are well aware of feedbacks like the ice feedback. Um, we call it the ice albedo. Albedo is just a word that means shininess, basically. Um, so all climate models include this in their simulations. Um, you know, there are other feedbacks that we understand very well. We know that warm air holds more water vapor, and water vapor is itself a greenhouse gas. So a warmer planet has more water vapor in the atmosphere. That water vapor itself is trapping more heat from the earth and warming up the earth even more. So that's another example of a destabilizing feedback.
0: You know, one of the things that I find Hopeful about this whole discussion is that you personally have a really strong communicative air about you. You <laughs> seem to you seem to be aware of who you're talking to, what level of sophistication they're at, what wh- wh- what they're interested in, where what the entry point to their understanding is. You seem to have a natural instinct for that, and I I I, I understand that you started out not wanting to be a scientist but to be in the arts which may be maybe a clue to your uh, making yourself available to an audience am i am i right about your your instincts in the beginning
2: I think so i I always wanted to be a writer or an actor or something to do with the arts. I didn't really see myself as a scientist. Um, and still, you know, even though I am a scientist, um, you know, the universe throws you curveballs sometimes, um, you know, I I tend to read a lot of fiction. Um, I tend to read a lot of poetry. I tend to read um, things that aren't necessarily scientific treatises. Um, and I think that... Really helps. It really helps, you know, as a, as an empathy training mechanism mm-hmm. um, to to wear somebody else's shoes for a little bit.
0: An example of that of being able to be so in touch with an audience that you can tickle their risibilities was this wonderful talk you gave on Story Collider, which is a wonderful series of scientists telling very touching stories and often very funny stories. And you, you told a story on that series about how you became a scientist. Do you mind if we play a little bit of it now? Because I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful example of what we're talking about. Sure, yeah.
2: So I had really simple goals when I was a kid. Um, all I ever wanted to be was a genius. Um, LAUGHTER And initially, I thought I was going to be a writer. I was going to be a literary genius. And people were going to talk about Shakespeare and Austen and Marvel. Um, But there was one problem with that. Um, I actually have here an actual book of poetry that I wrote when I was a teenager. And I'm going to read you some of it right now. I look through the window at the cold black rain It is black like my soul. (laughs) Black like my heart. Black like my broken heart. (laughs) Why do you not love me with your heart? Steve.
0: I love the spontaneous connection you have with the audience when you get to that punchline. The pause you take before Steve is just perfect. But I also wonder about the introduction to the idea that you wanted to be a genius as a kid. Did you, did that somehow have something to do with how you became a climate scientist? Did you, do you, do you still, do you still plan to be a genius? or Are you one now or <laughs> have you ever been?
2: Um, sadly, that story has a, a tragic ending where I did not, in fact, turn out to be a genius. Um, <laughs> I, I clearly was not a poetic genius, so I had to abandon that plan. Um, but I decided that I would go to graduate school in um, astrophysics because that would make me a genius, knowing astrophysics. Um, And so I went to graduate school and I studied cosmology, um, which is the study of the entire universe. And I realized during my PhD that most of the universe is terrible. Um, The earth is really the only good planet. And Getting very interested in Earth and wanting to understand what was going on here, that led me into my current path of, of being an Earth scientist. And I've realized that you don't have to be a genius to be a climate scientist, but you do need to be good at asking questions, because no one person is going to be able to understand every aspect of this unbelievable planet that
0: we get to call home. When we come back from our break, Kate Marvel tells me how storytelling is central to getting many different audiences to understand the reality of climate change, and how she feels that, in a way, her job as a scientist is done, the case is made. It's now time for action. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look,
1: there's going to be a shortage of welders.
0: VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career.
1: The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need.
0: Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: Listening to your favorite podcast. That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire university. That's really smart with 24 seven access to coursework no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kate Marvel. The idea that you understand the importance of story communicating science do you find that it's hard for fellow scientists to latch on to the idea that a story is okay to tell
2: um i actually want to stand up for fellow scientists here um i think especially the the younger generation especially phd students postdocs early career scientists I think there is a real understanding that science fundamentally is storytelling. Um, And when you want to communicate, not just with the general public or your parents or your friends, but other scientists, people who might be in a slightly different field than you, you really do need to think about why are you doing what you're doing and, and why is it important? And you need to do something that engages them. Um, and I think storytelling is just a way of making friends, basically. Um, and as scientists, we, we can't do this on our own. Nobody is going to understand the entire Earth system by themselves. Um, and that's why I think it's really important to be able to talk to one another. To be able to say, hey, you're an oceanographer and you're a plant biologist, and we are all trying to understand what is going on on this planet that has an ocean, that has a land surface covered by plants. Let's, let's work together to try to figure out what's going on here.
0: Yeah, I came across a quote of yours in which you said, being a good communicator makes you a better scientist. Our work is Interdisciplinary. One of the things I found in our training scientists in better communication at the Center for Communicating Science was that it was surprising that it wasn't just talking to the public that they became better at, it was talking to fellow scientists in other fields. I
2: agree. You know, I think this is a really, it's a skill that has historically not really been valued, but I think is increasingly being valued as people understand how important it is.
0: And when I was talking about connecting with the audience, I was also thinking about how you make use of the fact that different people, different segments of the population have different interests, different entry points for what you have to tell them about climate. What, how, how, do you, how do you differentiate some of those groups?
2: That's a good question um, I think it's really important not just to talk but also to be able to listen um, hmm. I don't know about you but I I find people so interesting um, you know everybody has their own story everybody knows something everybody's an expert in something and I in talking about climate I have met people hmm. who are just the most fascinating, interesting people in the world. And they're not other climate scientists necessarily. They have expertise and skills and experiences that I don't have. And... Once, for me, once I understood that talking about science wasn't just putting on a lab coat, I don't even own a lab coat, um, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> getting up on a pedestal and saying, I, the very important scientist, have something to tell you. But yeah, instead right. saying, you know, hey, like, how did, why are you here? What are you interested in knowing? Um, And tell me tell me about you. Tell me what you know. Then I think that... That's just a way more productive, but also happy experience for everybody. Because I think, I don't know, I don't, I don't really like being lectured to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody likes it. I, I was thinking about my question before when I said there are different groups who have different entry points. But not everybody in any, any given group has the same interest, the same need. Talking to farmers may be different from talking to a classroom of kids but the farmer's interests are not all related to crops, and the kid's interests are not all related to any one thing either.
2: Exactly, well, yeah.
0: Do you, do you plan ahead? When you're talking to a group, how do you make an evaluation of how to present what you're about to tell them?
2: I don't do as much homework as I should. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, do I plan? Not really. Um, but I, I find a lot of times in the moment, if you can get people to talk to you, um, if you can chat to people before, chat to people afterwards, uh. or talk to the person who invited you to come speak to the farmers or the students or whoever, um, you can kind of pick up clues. Um, because you're right, nobody nobody is just interested in one thing. I'm not just interested in science. I'm not just interested in climate change. And, you know, far I don't know anything about farming. So I think that's that's very important to acknowledge that, hey, I'm an expert in the thing that I spend my day doing, and you're an expert in the thing that you spend your day doing. And I value your expertise. Um, You know, I don't remember, sadly, exactly what it's like to be a kid. Um, But being a kid is a real experience. Um, You're learning so much, you're encountering the world. And Kids are fascinating. They're so interesting, and they ask the best questions.
0: Along these lines, I think you're working on a book called Human Nature, The Story of Climate Science in Nine Emotions. Is that the title?
2: It is for now. I I hope that is the permanent title, Yeah.
0: (laughs) yeah. Yeah, you never know. But what do you mean, nine emotions?
2: So I, I knew I wanted to write a book about climate change, but I was really struggling with how to tell a coherent story um, because sometimes I think about climate change and I feel so scared and sometimes I feel sad and sometimes I feel angry and sometimes I feel hopeful um, and sometimes I, I just feel really proud of what we've done together already and what we can do in the future. And I was struggling to find um, a narrative hook. I was struggling to find a story that was tonally consistent. And then I realized, no, that's the story. The story Mm. is that I don't have one feeling about climate change. I don't have one feeling about what is happening now and what's going to happen in the future. I have many feelings, and it's okay for scientists to have feelings. I think there's this notion that we should strive to be objective science robots who don't relate to the world and feel nothing. And that's not objectivity, that's lying. You shouldn't pretend that you don't feel things about the world that Mm. you live in. Um, And I don't think it makes you a more honest scientist to not tell the truth about how you feel.
0: That's so interesting. And you probably intersect not only with many different people's emotions emotions about what they hear about climate change, but also with many emotions that each of us feels. What does that lead you to think during the day? about what you're doing. Is it enough what you're doing? I think this all the time. When we have conversations about climate change from time to time on this podcast, I turn more lights off around the house than I ever did before. So little things and slightly bigger things. But I'm always, as I do each of these things, I think, is this really enough? Is what I do a spit in the ocean? And do more of us need to cough up a spit, or are we going to be in big trouble no matter what?
2: The way that I see it is that, yes, it is a spit in the ocean. But, and and for this, I really do rely on the expertise of people who work in social science, people who work in political science and sociology and study movements and how things get changed it's really helpful to figure out where am I the least alone? Where do I have the most power? Because none of us is isolated. We're all members of various communities. We live in towns. We belong to workplaces or churches or community groups. Um, So all of us You know, we're we're not all able to snap our fingers and pass sensible climate policies at the national or international level right now, but we don't have it. That that seems to me to be a false choice between the only things we can do are, you know, get elected president personally and change all the laws or, um, you know, turn off the lights. I think there is a whole space of effective action we can take in between those. So obviously we can vote, um, but we can also organize. We can organize for candidates who get it. Um, We can take action as employees and as community members um, and in our families. And that is really important because we talked about feedbacks before. There are feedbacks in the climate system, but there are also feedbacks in social systems um, where everything changes slowly, slowly, slowly. And then all of a sudden, all at once, the change is coming so quickly. Um, and so I have, I don't know if I have hope. I don't know if I need hope because for me, it's so clear every day what we can do and what I can do and what we can all do together. So asking, you know, do you have hope that we can slow climate change or avoid the worst effects is like asking, you know, do you hope you can clean up your room? Like, it's a weird
0: <laughs> question. Like, just do it. <laughs> well, I, I have one hope that I'll, I, I don't rely on hope much either, but the one hope I have is that we reach a positive tipping point along the lines you were talking about where raising the question urgently among ourselves leads to more action and more policy changes in time before we have the disastrous tipping point.
2: I will tell you that I feel as irrelevant these days as I ever have, and I love it. Um, People (laughs) used to ask me... What do you mean by that? So people used to ask me all the time, is this real? Is climate change real? Is it serious? Is it something that we should prioritize? Um, There are so many things to be worried about. Why should climate even be on our to-do list? And I don't get asked that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I feel like the large-scale debate has finally moved on from, is this real and is it bad, to what do we do? Um, And there are certainly very, very, very strong debates about what should we do. Um, There are people of really good faith who come down on different sides of any particular policy. But that is finally the conversation that we need to be having. And as somebody who is not a policy expert... Um, somebody who does not study how government works, how people can affect change. I am largely irrelevant to that conversation, and that makes me so happy.
0: (laughs) That's great. I wish we had time to talk more. We're running out of time. But we always end our show with seven quick questions, roughly to do with communication. Oh, no, (laughs) I was not told there was a quiz. Right, I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you right now, you get an A, so don't worry. (laughs) Yes. So the first question is, not just with regard to your work, but in any way, what do you wish you really understood?
2: Um, I mean, two things. I would like to understand why there is evil in a world in the world, and I would like to understand the low cloud feedback in response to global warming. That would The latter would make my job a lot easier.
0: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Not well. Um, <laughs> uh,
2: you know, you I, I I generally say, "Oh, I've made that mistake before," and odds are I am telling the truth. I make a lot of mistakes, and approaching it from the perspective of, "Oh, yeah, I used to think that," and then somebody explained it to me and it made sense. I think is much more effective and also much truer than I know everything, I've always known everything, and you're an idiot for not knowing what I know. I don't think that works.
0: Okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: Somebody asked me once, can I see the climate model? And I was very confused by what they meant. And then I realized that they thought that we had, like, a little model planet. How did you answer that? Um, I I said, I I wish
0: we had one. I would really like one. A little chamber with clouds in it. Mm -hmm. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Um, I have a friend who is a compulsive talker and he and I used to go swimming together and he would talk and he would talk and he would talk until we got to the edge of the pool and then I would just jump in.
0: (laughs) And stay under as long as you had to. Exactly. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation?
2: Um...
0: It helps
2: if I've read a book lately or, hmm. you know, read an article, um, but generally talking about something that I've heard or seen or read lately.
0: What gives you confidence?
2: Um, I am confident that we can address climate change if we want to, because we understand it. It's not an asteroid heading toward us that we don't understand and we don't have the power to head off. We understand exactly what's warming the world, so we know how to stop it.
0: Okay, last question. What book changed your life?
2: Uh, The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bogakov.
0: Just briefly, why?
2: Um it's one of my favorite books. Uh, it re- was written and censored in Soviet era Russia and it's just a completely bananas book about the devil in the form of a cat coming to Moscow wreaking havoc. Um and it's very complicated and I um when I was younger I was talking to a guy and I said I this my favorite book is is very um, I have a weird favorite book. And he asked me what it was, and I told him, and he said, that's my
0: favorite book. Um, and then we got married. Oh, what a nice story. I <laughs> no wonder it's your favorite book. Thank you so much, Kate. This has been a really fascinating and very helpful conversation. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much.
0: This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Kate Marvel is an associate research scientist at NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies and Columbia's Department of Applied Physics and Mathematics. The book she's working on is titled Human Nature, the Story of Climate Science in Nine Emotions. It's due for publication in 2023. Her website is marvelclimate.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chamey. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with John and Julie Gottman. Forty years of research studying over 3,000 couples has given them powerful and practical insights into what makes a relationship prosper or fail. Julie and I built a laboratory at the University of Washington where 130 newlywed couples just occupied an apartment kind of setting where they could move around very freely. And uh, we studied them for 24 hours, uh, had the cameras going for 24 hours. Also collecting urine samples, (laughs) we were collecting blood uh, and so on. So it was more detailed physiological measures than what we had done before. We found that the couples who were more physiologically aroused, hearts were beating faster, his blood were flowing faster, and so on, uh, had relationships that deteriorated over time. And that was the basic finding. So the people who were calmer when they talked to one another and interacted with one another had relationships that got better and better over time. Just one of the insights into marital success from John and Julie Gottman. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
1: Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart.